Section 7 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 7. About Warwick. A year or two afterwards I paid another visit to the hospital, and found a new porter established in office, and already capable of talking like a guide-book about the history, antiquities, and present condition of the charity. He informed me that the twelve brethren are selected from among old soldiers of good character, whose other resources must not exceed an income of five pounds, thus excluding all commissioned officers, whose half-pay would of course be more than that amount. They receive from the hospital an annuity of eighty pounds each, besides their apartments, a garment of fine blue cloth, an annual abundance of ale, and a privilege at the kitchen fire, so that, considering the class from which they are taken, they may well reckon themselves among the fortunate of the earth. Furthermore, they are invested with political rights, acquiring a vote for Member of Parliament in virtue either of their income or brotherhood. On the other hand, as regards their personal freedom or conduct, they are subject to a supervision which the master of the hospital might render extremely annoying were he so inclined. But the military restraint under which they have spent the active portion of their lives makes it easier for them to endure the domestic discipline here imposed upon their age. The porter bore his testimony, whatever were its value, to their being as contented and happy as such a set of old people could possibly be, and affirmed that they spent much time in burnishing their silver badges, and were as proud of them as a nobleman of his star. These badges, by the by, except one that was stolen and replaced in Queen Anne's time, are the very same that decorated the original twelve brethren. I have seldom met with a better guide than my friend the porter. He appeared to take a genuine interest in the peculiarities of the establishment, and yet had an existence apart from them, so that he could the better estimate what those peculiarities were. To be sure, his knowledge and observation were confined to external things, but so far had a sufficiently extensive scope. He led me up the staircase, and exhibited portions of the timber framework of the edifice that are reckoned to be eight or nine hundred years old, and are still neither worm-eaten nor decayed, and traced out what had been a great hall in the days of the Catholic fraternity, though its area is now filled up with the apartments of the twelve brethren, and pointed to ornaments of sculptured oak, done in an ancient religious style of art, but hardly visible amid the vaulted dimness of the roof." Thence we went to the chapel, the Gothic church which I noted several pages back, surmounting the gateway that stretches half across the street. Here the brethren attend daily prayer, and each have a prayer-book of the finest paper, with a fair large type for their old eyes. The interior of the chapel is very plain, with a picture of no merit for an altar-piece, and a single old pane of painted glass in the great eastern window, representing no saint nor angel, as is customary in such cases, but that grim sinner, the Earl of Leicester. Nevertheless, amid so many tangible proofs of his human sympathy, one comes to doubt whether the Earl could have been such a hardened reprobate after all. We ascended the tower of the chapel, and looked down between its battlements into the street, a hundred feet below us, 
while clambering halfway up were foxglove flowers, weeds, small shrubs, and tufts of grass that had rooted themselves into the roughnesses of the stone foundation. Far around us lay a rich and lovely English landscape, with many a church spire and noble country seat, and several objects of high historic interest. Edge Hill, where the Puritans defeated Charles I, is in sight on the edge of the horizon, and much nearer stands the house where Cromwell lodged on the night before battle. Right under our eyes, and half enveloping the town with its high-shouldering wall, so that all the closely compacted streets seemed but a precinct of the estate, was the Earl of Warwick's delightful park, a wide extent of sunny lawns interspersed with broad contiguities of forest shade. Some of the cedars of Lebanon were there, a growth of trees in which the Warwick family take a hereditary pride. The two highest towers of the castle heave themselves up out of a mass of foliage, and look down in a lordly manner upon the plebeian roofs of the town, a part of which are slate-covered, these are the modern houses, and a part are coated with old red tiles, denoting the more ancient edifices. A hundred and sixty or seventy years ago a great fire destroyed a considerable portion of the town, and doubtless annihilated many structures of a remote antiquity. At least there was a possibility of very old houses in the long past of Warwick, which King Cymbeline is said to have founded in the year one of the Christian era. And this historic fact or poetic fiction, whichever it may be, brings to mind a more indestructible reality than anything else that has occurred within the present field of our vision, though this includes the scene of Guy of Warwick's legendary exploits, and some of those of the Round Table, to say nothing of the Battle of Edge Hill. For perhaps it was in the landscape now under our eyes that Posthumus wandered with the king's daughter, the sweet, chaste, faithful, and courageous Imogen, the tenderest and womanliest woman that Shakespeare ever made immortal in the world. The silver Avon, which we see flowing so quietly by the grey castle, may have held their images in its bosom. The day, though it began brightly, had long been overcast, and the clouds now spat down a few spiteful drops upon us, besides that the east wind was very chill, so we descended the winding tower stair, and went next into the garden, one side of which is shut in by almost the only remaining portion of the old city wall. A part of the garden ground is devoted to grass and shrubbery, and permeated by gravel walks, in the centre of one of which is a beautiful stone vase of Egyptian sculpture that formerly stood on the top of a nilometer, or graduated pillar, for measuring the rise and fall of the river Nile. On the pedestal is a Latin inscription by Dr. Parr, who, his vicarage of Hatton being so close at hand, was probably often the master's guest, and smoked his interminable pipe along these garden walks. Of the vegetable garden which lies adjacent, the lion's share is appropriated to the master, and twelve small separate patches to the individual brethren, who cultivate them at their own judgment and by their own labor, and their beans and cauliflowers have a better flavor, I doubt not, than if they had received them directly from the dead hand of the Earl of Leicester, like the rest of their food. In the farther part of the garden is an arbor for the old men's pleasure and convenience, and I should like well to sit down among them there, and find out what is really the bitter and the sweet of such a sort of life. 
As for the old gentlemen themselves, they put me queerly in mind of the Salem Custom House, and the venerable personages whom I found so quietly at anchor there. The master's residence, forming one entire side of the quadrangle, fronts on the garden, and wears an aspect at once stately and homely. It can hardly have undergone any perceptible changes within three centuries, but the garden, into which its old windows look, has probably put off a great many eccentricities and quaintnesses in the way of cunningly clipped shrubbery since the gardener of Queen Elizabeth's reign threw down his rusty shears and took his departure. The present master's name is Harris. He is a descendant of the founder's family, a gentleman of independent fortune and a clergyman of the established church, as the regulations of the hospital require him to be. I know not what are his official emoluments, but, according to an English precedent, an ancient charitable fund is certain to be held directly for the behoof of those who administer it, and, perhaps incidentally, in a moderate way, for the nominal beneficiaries, and, in the case before us, the twelve brethren being so comfortably provided for, the master is likely to be at least as comfortable as all the twelve together. Yet I ought not, even in a distant land, to fling an idle gibe against a gentleman of whom I really know nothing, except that the people under his charge bear all possible tokens of being tended and cared for as sedulously as if each of them sat by a warm fireside of his own, with a daughter bustling round the hearth to make ready his porridge and his tidbits. It is delightful to think of the good life which a suitable man, in the master's position, has an opportunity to lead, linked to time-honoured customs, welded in with an ancient system, never dreaming of radical change, and bringing all the mellowness and richness of the past down into these railway days, which do not compel him or his community to move a whit quicker than of yore. Everybody can appreciate the advantages of going ahead. It might be well, sometimes, to think whether there is not a word or two to be said in favor of standing still or going to sleep. From the garden we went into the kitchen, where the fire was burning hospitably, and diffused a genial warmth far and wide, together with the fragrance of some old English roast beef, which I think must at that moment have been done nearly to a turn. The kitchen is a lofty, spacious, and noble room, partitioned off round the fireplace by a sort of semicircular oaken screen, or rather an arrangement of heavy and high-backed settles, with an ever-open entrance between them, on either side of which is the omnipresent image of the bare and ragged staff, three feet high, and excellently carved in oak, now black with time and unctuous kitchen smoke. The ponderous mantelpiece, likewise of carved oak, towers high towards the dusky ceiling, and extends its mighty breadth to take in a vast area of hearth, the arch of the fireplace being positively so immense that I could compare it to nothing but the city gateway. Above its cavernous opening were crossed two ancient halberds, the weapons, possibly, of soldiers who had fought under Leicester in the Low Countries, and elsewhere on the walls were displayed several muskets, which some of the present inmates of the hospital may have leveled against the French. Another ornament of the mantelpiece was a square of silken needlework or embroidery, faded nearly white, but dimly representing that wearisome bare and ragged staff which we should hardly look at twice, only that it was wrought by the fair fingers of poor Amy Robsart, 
and beautifully framed in oak from Kenilworth Castle at the expense of a Mr. Connor, a countryman of our own. Certainly no Englishman would be capable of this little bit of enthusiasm. Finally, the kitchen firelight glistens on a splendid display of copper flagons, all of generous capacity, and one of them is about as big as a half-barrel. The smaller vessels contain the customary allowance of ale, and the larger one is filled with that foaming liquor on four festive occasions of the year, and emptied amain by the jolly brotherhood. I should be glad to see them do it, but it would be an exploit fitter for Queen Elizabeth's age than these degenerate times. The kitchen is the social hall of the twelve brethren. In the daytime they bring their little messes to be cooked here, and eat them in their own parlors, but after a certain hour the great hearth is cleared and swept, and the old men assemble round its blaze, each with his tankard and his pipe, to hold high converse through the evening. If the master be a fit man for his office, methinks he will sometimes sit down sociably among them, for there is an elbow-chair by the fireside which it would not demean his dignity to fill, since it was occupied by King James at the great festival of nearly three centuries ago. A sip of the ale and a whiff of the tobacco-pipe would put him in friendly relations with his venerable household, and then we can fancy him instructing them by pithy apothems and religious texts which were first uttered here by some Catholic priest, and have impregnated the atmosphere ever since. If a joke goes round, it shall be of an elder coinage than Joe Miller's, as old as Lord Bacon's collection, or as the jest-book that Master Slender asked for, when he lacked small-talk for sweet Anne Page. No news shall be spoken of a later than the drifting ashore, on the northern coast, of some stern post or figurehead, a barnacled fragment of one of the great galleons of the Spanish Armada. What a tremor would pass through the antique group, if a damp newspaper should suddenly be spread to dry before the fire! They would feel as if either that printed sheet or they themselves must be an unreality. What a mysterious awe if the shriek of the railway train, as it reaches the Warwick station, should ever so faintly invade their ears! Movement of any kind seems inconsistent with the stability of such an institution. Nevertheless, I trust that the ages will carry it along with them, because it is such a pleasant kind of dream for an American to find his way thither, and behold a piece of the sixteenth century set into our prosaic times, and then to depart and think of its arched doorway as a spell-guarded entrance, which will never be accessible or visible to him any more. Not far from the market-place of Warwick stands the great church of St. Mary's, a vast edifice indeed, and almost worthy to be a cathedral. People who pretend to skill in such matters say that it is in a poor style of architecture, though designed, or at least extensively restored, by Sir Christopher Wren but I thought it very striking, with its wide, high, and elaborate windows, its tall towers, its immense length, and, for it was long before I outgrew this Americanism, the love of an old thing merely for the sake of its age, the tinge of grey antiquity over the whole. Once, while I stood gazing up at the tower, the clock struck twelve with a very deep intonation, and immediately some chivies began to play and kept up their resounding music for five minutes, as measured by the hand upon the dial. It was a very delightful harmony, as airy as the notes of birds, 
and seemed a not unbecoming freak of half-sportive fancy in the huge, ancient, and solemn church, although I have seen an old-fashioned parlor-clock that did precisely the same thing in its small way. The great attraction of this edifice is the Beauchamp, or, as the English, who delight in vulgarizing their fine old Norman names, call it the Beecham Chapel, where the earls of Warwick and their kindred have been buried from four hundred years back till within a recent period. It is a stately and very elaborate chapel, with a large window of ancient painted glass, as perfectly preserved as any that I remember seeing in England, and remarkably vivid in its colors. Here are several monuments with marble figures recumbent upon them, representing the earls in their knightly armor, and their dames in the ruffs and court finery of their day, looking hardly stiffer in stone than they must needs have been in their starched linen and embroidery. The renowned Earl of Leicester of Queen Elizabeth's time, the benefactor of the hospital, reclines at full length on the tablet of one of these tombs, side by side with his countess, not Amy Robsart, but a lady who, unless I have confused the story with some other mouldy scandal, is said to have avenged poor Amy's murder by poisoning the earl himself. Be that as it may, both figures, and especially the earl, look like the very types of ancient honor and conjugal faith. In consideration of his long-enduring kindness to the twelve brethren, I cannot consent to believe him as wicked as he is usually depicted, and it seems a marvel, now that so many well-established historical verdicts have been reversed, why some enterprising writer does not make out Leicester to have been the pattern nobleman of his age. In the centre of the chapel is the magnificent memorial of its founder, Richard Beauchamp, Earl of Warwick in the time of Henry the Sixth. On a richly ornamented altar-tomb of grey marble lies the bronze figure of a knight in gilded armour, most admirably executed, for the sculptors of those days had wonderful skill in their own style, and could make so lifelike an image of a warrior, in brass or marble, that, if a trumpet were sounded over his tomb, you would expect him to start up and handle his sword. The earl whom we now speak of, however, has slept soundly in spite of a more serious disturbance than any blast of a trumpet, unless it were the final one. Some centuries after his death, the floor of the chapel fell down and broke open the stone coffin in which he was buried, and among the fragments appeared the anciently entombed Earl of Warwick, with the colors scarcely faded out of his cheeks, his eyes a little sunken, but in other respects looking as natural as if he had died yesterday. But exposure to the atmosphere appeared to begin and finish the long-delayed process of decay in a moment causing him to vanish like a bubble, so that, almost before there had been time to wonder at him, there was nothing left of the stalwart earl save his hair. This sole relic the ladies of Warwick made prize of, and braided it into rings and brooches for their own adornment, and thus, with a chapel and a ponderous tomb built on purpose to protect his remains, this great nobleman could not help being brought untimely to the light of day, or even keep his love-locks on his skull after he had so long done with love. There seems to be a fatality that disturbs people in their sepulchres when they have been over-careful to render them magnificent and impregnable, as witness the builder of the pyramids, 
and Hadrian, Augustus, and the Scipios, and most other personages whose mausoleums have been conspicuous enough to attract the violator. And as for dead men's hair, I have seen a lock of King Edward the Fourth's of a reddish-brown color, which perhaps was once twisted round the delicate forefinger of Mistress Shore. The direct lineage of the renowned characters that lie buried in this splendid chapel has long been extinct. The earldom is now held by the Grevels, descendants of the Lord Brooke who was slain in the Parliamentary War, and they have recently, that is to say within a century, built a burial vault on the other side of the church, calculated, as the sexton assured me, with a nod as if he were pleased, to afford suitable and respectful accommodation to as many as fourscore coffins. Thank heaven the old man did not call them caskets, a vile modern phrase, which compels a person of sense and good taste to shrink more disgustfully than ever before from the idea of being buried at all. But as regards those eighty coffins, only sixteen have as yet been contributed, and it may be a question with some minds, not merely whether the Grevels will hold the earldom of Warwick until the full number shall be made up, but whether earldoms and all manner of lordships will not have faded out of England long before those many generations shall have passed from the castle to the vault. I hope not. A titled and landed aristocracy, if anywise an evil and an encumbrance, is so only to the nation which is doomed to bear it on its shoulders. And an American, whose sole relation to it is to admire its picturesque effect upon society, ought to be the last man to quarrel with what affords him so much gratuitous enjoyment. Nevertheless, conservative as England is, and though I scarce ever found an Englishman who seemed really to desire change, there was continually a dull sound in my ears, as if the old foundations of things were crumbling away. Some time or other, by no irreverent effort of violence, but rather in spite of all pious efforts to uphold a heterogeneous pile of institutions that will have outlasted their vitality, at some unexpected moment there must come a terrible crash. The sole reason why I should desire it to happen in my day is that I might be there to see it, but the ruin of my own country is, perhaps, all that I am destined to witness, and that immense catastrophe, though I am strong in the faith that there is a national lifetime of a thousand years in us yet, would serve any man well enough as his final spectacle on earth. If the visitor is inclined to carry away any little memorial of Warwick, he had better go to an old curiosity shop in the high street, where there is a vast quantity of obsolete gewgaws, great and small, and many of them so pretty and ingenious that you wonder how they came to be thrown aside and forgotten. As regards its minor tastes, the world changes, but does not improve. It appears to me, indeed, that there have been epochs of far more exquisite fancy than the present one, in manners of personal ornament, and such delicate trifles as we put upon a drawing-room table, a mantelpiece, or a what-not. The shop in question is near the east gate, but is hardly to be found without careful search, being denoted only by the name of Redfern, painted not very conspicuously in the top light of the door. Immediately on entering we find ourselves among a confusion of old rubbish and valuables, 
ancient armor, historic portraits, ebony cabinets inlaid with pearl, tall, ghostly clocks, hideous old china, dim-looking glasses in frames of tarnished magnificence, a thousand objects of strange aspect, and others that almost frighten you by their likeness in unlikeness to things now in use. It is impossible to give an idea of the variety of articles, so thickly strewn about that we can scarcely move without overthrowing some great curiosity with a crash, or sweeping away some small one hitched to our sleeves. Three stories of the entire house are crowded in like manner. The collection, even as we see it exposed to view, must have been got together at great cost, but the real treasures of the establishment lie in secret repositories, whence they are not likely to be drawn forth at ordinary summons, though if a gentleman with a competently long purse should call for them, I doubt not that the signet ring of Joseph's friend Pharaoh, or the Duke of Alva's leading staff, or the dagger that killed the Duke of Buckingham, all of which I have seen, or any other almost incredible thing, might make its appearance. Gold snuff-boxes, antique gems, jeweled goblets, Venetian wine-glasses, which burst when poison is poured into them, and therefore must not be used for modern wine-drinking, jasper-handled knives, painted several teacups, in short, there are all sorts of things that a virtuoso ransacks the world to discover. It would be easier to spend a hundred pounds in Mr. Redfern's shop than to keep the money in one's pocket, but, for my part, I contented myself with buying a little old spoon of silver gilt, and fantastically shaped, and got it at all the more reasonable rate, because there happened to be no legend attached to it. I could supply any deficiency of that kind at much less expense than re-gilding the spoon. End of section 7